You're listening to the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast on the Medics Academy Network. Welcome to the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast with me, Owen Walker. And me, Caroline Phillips. This is a podcast where we use our joint 35 years experience working in the pre-hospital arena to speak to a whole card array of specialists about all things related to ambulance work. We really hope you enjoy these episodes for your own CPD, but please do remember to work within your own guidelines and local policies when in practice. Welcome back to the Pre-Hospital Care podcast, everybody. And this is episode four of a very special maternity mini-series that I'm doing with the LAS maternity team. And I'm joined today by Stacey Robinson, who is our practice lead midwife, who's been here for the previous three episodes. And it's with great pleasure that we welcome Sarah Brown, who's the practice lead paramedic for the maternity team with London to this episode today. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Caroline. Hi, Stacey. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for being here. And um, Sarah, I'm just wondering if very briefly you wouldn't mind introducing yourself and your role and what your day-to-day looks like um, working for the maternity team in London, please. Yeah, so um, yeah, so my role, I work alongside Stacey as the practice lead midwife and with um, our consultant midwife. And we um, essentially look after the care that women receive pre-hospitally from the ambulance service so we look at um, any sort of emergency that the uh, that comes maybe through the 909s or the 111 service um, and we provide um, kind of support for clinicians that have been to instances we may review them uh, we may look at kind of learning and how to kind of reflect and develop sort of understanding within kind of individual clinicians but we also look at kind of systems and how we can improve our training around uh, all clinicians really kind of across all of the trust and also how we can um, work together to improve maternal outcomes and newborn outcomes. Um, So we do a lot of training, a lot of governance um, and some guidelines sort of work as well. And we work within kind of a close knit team of other, of other healthcare professionals. So we're really well linked within the other parts of the organization. That's amazing. And you must have such an amazing experience and knowledge behind you. So it's a real pleasure to have you here. And especially as a specialist paramedic, um, I think we've established from the last three episodes that I am certainly not a specialist paramedic in, <laughs> uh, in maternity care by any stretch of the imagination. So it's really wonderful to have you here. And it's so wonderful for the service to have a paramedic perspective at that level of seniority in terms of uh, maternity care. So thank you so much. Again, it's brilliant to have your expertise here on the episode today and what we're going to be doing for this final episode of the uh, maternity mini series is we're going to be talking about some of the um, sort of key emergencies that we're all familiar with in terms of our clinical practice guidelines so we're going to be talking about cord prolapse we're going to be talking about shoulder dystocia and those types of maternity emergencies Um, and fortunately they are very rare but we have um, got both of your skills and experiences um, to discuss some of the key things that we really need to know when we're working in the pre-hospital environment um, if we're to come across these types of critical emergencies. So Sarah I'm just wondering if you can kick us off please. Um, Could you just do a quick refresher for us about postpartum hemorrhage? How much blood loss are we talking about and when can it happen? Is it straight away or can it be a little bit delayed? Yes so um... 
postpartum hemorrhage can be um, immediate and it can be delayed. So when we talk about postpartum hemorrhage, we'd refer to it as a primary postpartum hemorrhage, which happens within the first 24 hours. And then a secondary postpartum hemorrhage that can happen from kind of that 24 hour time period up into about the three month time period. And a postpartum hemorrhage is defined as, a, as an estimated blood loss of 500 mils or more. And there are different reasons why a woman would have a postpartum hemorrhage. And I guess the easiest one or the way to look at it is if we talk predominantly about primary postpartum hemorrhage, because in the pre-hospital setting, that's the one that we're more likely to see. And that's usually happening on scene after the birth of a newborn. Um, and when you look at primary postpartum hemorrhages, you've got the kind of four T's that we would uh, refer back to as to why women have a postpartum hemorrhage and um, the main one is tone so it's a uterine atony so the lack of uterine tone and that accounts for 70 percent of uh, postpartum hemorrhages so really that's a big group of women that we can manage and we have a lot of um, skills within our scope to help manage that tone problem um, and if I talk through the other ones and then come back to the management, that might be quite useful. So the other type that makes up about 20% is trauma. And we would refer to trauma kind of encompassing tears and predominantly tears in the pre-hospital setting. But also kind of trauma would be your uterine ruptures or your inverted uterus. But really what we'd be looking for or what we would be able to manage would be those tears and it, applying that sort of direct pressure. And then you've got the tissue, which is kind of retained placental tissue. Um, and that's very difficult for us to diagnose pre-hospitally. It's not necessarily something that we're going to know. And it's certainly something that's slightly is more familiar with the secondary postpartum hemorrhage. But it's something to be mindful of. It's not something you're going to be able to, to fix. But it is something to think, well, actually, if I can't see any obvious trauma or tone, is it a tissue problem? And then that last 1%, which um, we probably should know about, but they're very rare. So these would be for women that were maybe unbooked or we didn't have any... Uh, previous medical knowledge and they would be kind of your thrombin which is your kind of coagulation and blood problems so if you had a clotting issue predominantly your management would be uh, obstetric led and in a in a specialist center so it's unlikely as pre-hospital clinicians that we've come across these women but obviously there is the potential that they we could meet them and that they may not know they have those underlying problems and if they do have kind of a a quick labour, we may see them, but it is something to be really mindful of and you should be able to find that sort of information within their notes. Um, so going back to kind of tone and really management of tone, um, I guess the first thing to talk about is how do you know that there's a tone problem? And I think it's really interesting because as pre-hospital clinicians, we always talk about uterine assessment and it's always kind of written within our guidelines. But what we found over time is that maybe people aren't that comfortable or confident assessing that tone. And so um, it is well described um, within JR Calc, and I'd urge people to go back and look at the pictures because obviously it's easy for me to describe, but you may uh, visualise better what, what I'm talking oh, about. The side of my hand or the edge of my hand at the top of where the umbilicus is. And I'd be feeling to feel what the tone of the uterus is. And when, when I'm feeling and I've got my hand there, if it's a well-contracted uterus, it would feel like a firm cricket ball. And that's where that muscle's completely contracted. And if I feel and I can't feel anything, so I'm chasing something that doesn't exist, I'm kind of looking for that boggy, there's a boggy sort of mass there. The same sort of mass that you might feel with like a traumatic brain injury where you feel the back of the head and it's quite kind of boggy and you describe that as a boggy mass. And it's a similar sort of mass, but much bigger within the uterus. That's my, my easiest way to describe it. And you're chasing something that doesn't exist and you're moving your hand. So that for me would be no tone. 
um, and that's the sort of tone that you'd want to manage. Um, so the easiest way to manage that in kind of your first line management, and we're talking at the moment with the placenta being out. So if the placenta has delivered, then you'd be looking at doing fundal massage or uterine massage. And those terms are uh, used interchangeably. So when you're doing that uterine massage, you would just massage with your hand. And what you're trying to do is stimulate those cells to contract. So you would, uh, you would be rubbing and over time you would feel the uterus firm up under your hands. And then you would end up with this cricket ball. Now, the thing with this stimulation is that that will create that, that firm con uh, contracted uterus, but that, that tone will not stay. So the person who has, who has assessed that abdomen would need to stay in the same position, just continuously assessing that uterus, but also providing stimulation when required. Um, and simultaneously, I'd be asking the other clinicians on scene if it's within their scope to draw up uh, Sintometrin or another eutrotonic, depending on where the clinician works. But for us, it would be Sintometrin as our first line. Um, and we would be giving that IM. And that also stimulates the uterine contraction. Um, when you've kind of given that Sintometrin, I'd be always continuously assessing. And that one person that's got that handle, that uterus, I would say should be there as much as feasibly possible. They'd need to be there all the time. And this is a labor intensive sort of job. I'd like, a, uh, it's gonna require a lot of clinicians to manage the emergency. Um, so when I've done my fundal massage and I've given my Sintometrin, um, if the woman is still bleeding and this has not kind of yeah, reduced the continuous bleeding, I'd be looking at other drug therapies. So kind of your TXA, certainly for, our clinicians, it's covered within a PGD, so we would give transamic acids. Um, and then I'd be thinking about the requirement for fluids. And there's, there's, there's benefits and um, there are some benefits to fluids. But really, if we're that far down the algorithm, at that point, I would have been thinking, well, actually, we need to get moving to hospital. And we should kind of be trying to maintain, uh, maintain a plan to move to definitive care. Um, having um, early kind of preparation and move to hospital is really important in these groups of patients. So I would be working with the team to have that shared communication of actually, if this bleeding doesn't stop, we need to get this, this patient out as quickly as possible. What do we need to do that? Because the reality is, is these, these women will probably be in our upstairs potentially. How are we going to get them down? How are we going to get them out to the ambulance? How are we going to get them in? And how much time are we going to afford the receiving unit to prepare? So one of the things that I'm really, well, we are really pushing as a team at the minute is that early pre-alert. So before you're on the ambulance, before you're ready to go, where you've now got a five-minute ETA, let's actually summon that help a little bit earlier. So when we're thinking about the extrication, if we've got that clinical lead thinking, actually, should we do an early pre-alert? So... All of those sort of things, regardless of the cause of the PPH, can be going on in the background. Um, so that would be kind of my placenta out. And then for tone placenta in, um, it's a little bit different because we wouldn't be doing that uterine massage unless the bleeding was considered life-threatening. Um, and the primary or the first line management for a tone problem with a placenta in would be the Sintometrin. So I'd actually start with the Sintometrin first. And only if that bleed became life-threatening would I attempt the fundal massage. And what are the um, Sarah? Oh, sorry, Sarah. What What are the risks? I mean, why Why is it so important that we, you know, hold off with the fundal massage unless it's a life-threatening bleed? Is it that we're going to risk further bleeding? Is it because it's? Is that the the main concern really? 
so when you do that fundal massage, you're creating that, you're essentially causing a uterine trauma. So with the placenta in tissue, you, uh, in situ, you'd be causing that placental separation or you have the risk of causing that placental separation. Mm -hmm. So actually, if, if the bleeding can be controlled with a uterotonic, actually the, the trauma that you'll, um, you'll cause by doing fundal massage um, actually will cause that placenta separation, which then runs the risk of retained uh, retain tissue and the need for the woman to go into theatre. So actually that's why it's kind of reserved for those life-threatening um, emergencies. That was interesting that you said about would we cause more blood loss? Because actually when we do deliver, when that placenta does deliver or when that uterus does start to contract, you may find regardless of whether the placenta is in or out, an increase in blood loss actually it's not uncommon that when you're doing fundal massage actually you think actually i'm making this worse the ebl is getting worse but i'm doing what i think i should be doing and i think it's knowing that actually that is the path and this is an expected consequence of the uterus contracting is that you may see a slight increase in, in clots or blood loss initially while that uterus is fully contracting so don't be too concerned if you think your blood loss is going up stick with your management that is that's really interesting to know because I can imagine if you were doing this you would be feeling quite apprehensive about the fact that actually initially you're getting perhaps a little bit more blood loss mm. and Sarah can I just ask in terms of the actual um fundal massage your description about the cricket ball was so brilliant like I've never heard it being described like that before and I think that's a really good visual for people to keep in their mind's eye um my question is is how firm should we be doing the the fundal massage and how you know how rigorous should we be is it meant it, i mean if we're doing it vigorously enough would it be painful for the woman what what are your thoughts on that yeah so whilst it's called fundal massage this isn't a nice therapeutic massage this should be uh, unfortunately this is a painful experience because what you're trying to do is stimulate those cells to contract so actually this is going to be quite a painful experience for the woman and even that initial assessment that can be quite painful especially if you're not familiar with what you're feeling for actually that can be quite painful in itself and i think for me it's about having that opportunity for the woman to have some pain relief so some entonox would be appropriate but also kind of explaining to her that this isn't that this unfortunately isn't going to be a nice procedure i think it's about having that open and honest conversation you are bleeding and i need to assess your abdomen um, and now I need to do this massage. It is going to hurt, but this is why I'm going to do it. And I think it's really interesting because actually, again, it's that thing of, well, I'm causing pain. Am I making it worse? And actually, unfortunately, in this case, it is extremely painful because you're trying to get a muscle with no tone to stimulate enough to contract. Mm -hmm. And so actually massages may be uh, a nice word, but the reality is it's going to be quite painful. Yeah I, yeah, I completely agree. I think it's just getting that getting sort of the consent with the woman and just warning her and apologizing. And yeah, that's, that's the time you want to be offering Intonox if you haven't already done so. If it's been quite a quick delivery or she's bleeding when you've arrived and the baby's already out, cause it's, it's really uncomfortable and you need to keep her engaged. Cause unfortunately that's going to happen and it's going to continue, isn't it? So, you know, the uterine massage, once you feel that it's become a cricket ball underneath your hand, as Sarah has, has really described, um, until the centimetron that has taken effect and it's, a, it's an IM injection, it's likely that you'll feel, you, you want to stop the massage. You don't want to kind of overstimulate by carrying on massage once you feel that cricket ball, but you need to keep your hand there because eventually 
until the, the sort of the medicine has taken effect, it will lose its contraction again because this is a tired muscle. That's why it's a, that's why it's a tone problem. The muscle has just gone flat and it's just lost its ability to contract by itself. The oxytocin levels have obviously dropped, so it's not helping cause that uterine contraction. And so that person will want to stay in that position. And Sarah said, as far as resources and management, you need that person's hand to stay there because they will feel it go from underneath their hand. And so they'll want to be doing it again. So for that woman's perspective, you know, you're kind of going to be an interference that won't move until you've handed over in hospital mm -hmm. because, you know, the hand has to stay there and you have to openly communicate with the team saying, you know, I'm commencing um, uterine massage again because the uterus has gone again. Mm -hmm. And they'll have to start again with the kind of the digging and the, and the rubbing up that contraction that can be really uncomfortable for the woman. Mm -hmm. And I think just another thing that you mentioned on Sarah that I wanted to pick up is about providing the pre-alert in advance before you're in the back of the ambulance. And we've seen this, you know, in practice, we see it with, you know, when you do sort of HEMS cases, um, you know, we see people doing that, giving as much warning as possible. Um, and I think certainly in London, when we're so close to, you know, usually very close to receiving facilities, you know, why can't, you know, why don't we give that pre-alert? You know, the e we can change the ETA, we can alter the ETA, but why don't we give that pre-alert when we're in the house to give people enough time to prepare? Um, and it makes so much sense. So um, I think that's a really key learning point, especially for, for me, you know, that's really brilliant. Yeah, I think that if you afford the unit or the receiving hospital the opportunity to prepare, the reception that you get is, is extremely different. I think we have to remember that if we give people a two minute ETA or a five minute ETA for our arrival, that actually there's very limited time for them to find a room to find the clinicians and to be prepared. But if I change that ETA for 20 minutes, actually that gives everyone the opportunity to assign roles, to have a location, to have a clear communication of how they're gonna manage the emergency when it arrives. We're doing lots of work um, around um, the postpartum hemorrhage management um, in London. And I think it's just helping with that recognition um, and, then, and, and then the management. And again, you know, calling for more help and, you know, assessing, I would say continually assess actually and and you want to make sure and we'll touch on documentation as well but I think you should constantly be reassessing that blood loss and having that open communication of you know because especially as more and more people are coming on scene as well and are arriving and you might have another crew arrive you might have you know a team manager or a, a critical care APP arrive and you've given the handover but actually in the last five minutes it's gone from managing a 700 mil blood loss to a 1.2 mil blood loss mm. Um, and please, if, if you can as well, and I know, um, you know, lots of crews already do, but if you can gather up the blood loss, cause, cause what we would do in a maternity unit is we would weigh it all. Mm. Um, and, and that will help us with a, a kind of, it is still very much a guesstimation. Um, but if we can try and quantify that blood loss and then obviously with the blood tests and everything that would take place in hospital, we'd know what kind of recovery this woman would require as far as blood products, um, so that that's the only thing for me really is just to make sure that you're continually assessing the blood loss and communicating that with the team and then taking everything with you you know even if it is bags full of sort of sheets and incos and things like that and i guess all i would add to that is we didn't really um touch too much on tear and what i would say is it's about gaining consent to actually visually inspect and you're not doing an internal inspection 
and there's lots of types of tears but what I'm kind of talking about is tears that are obvious to you and are actively bleeding and what you need to be doing is just applying direct pressure to those tears that you can see now there are a lot of tears that you won't be able to see that will be bleeding significantly um, or could be bleeding significantly but if you if you have consent and you can vis uh, visually inspect any tears that you can see when you look um, it's just applying that direct pressure and what you may find is if it's a smaller tear that's only bleeding slightly you may find that the pad and then asking the woman to provide kind of her own gentle support really helps with the pain management so obviously that's outside of the postpartum hemorrhage that's more in your routine tears but actually having the woman to apply her own direct pressure may actually provide some comfort for that pain they are extremely painful tears brilliant thank you very much so um from postpartum hemorrhage, we're now moving swiftly on to cord prolapse. Um, so another one of the maternal emergencies that is in our guidelines that we're all aware of, but perhaps not necessarily sort of clinically familiar with. And I'm wondering, um, Sarah, if you can talk a little bit about cord prolapse and about really the management of that. Yeah, so kind of from our sort of emergence, obstetric emergency, it's called prolapse, it's quite a quick one really, because there's limited things that we can do pre-hospitally and the real focus has to be on definitive care. Um, so just to kind of recap, a cord prolapse is where that umbilical cord has come through the cervix and is in the vagina. So these types of calls um, potentially come down as... Um, there's something in between my legs I went to the toilet I felt a gush and there's now something in between my leg um, in between my legs a lot of people don't expect there to be a cord nor do they um, report that on the phone so it's on so it's always having that index of suspicion that if someone says there's something in between their legs or they felt something and it doesn't feel right it's about gaining that early consent to have a look and then if you do find that cord it's about managing that emergency as quickly as you can so kind of the first thing that you'd be doing is getting that woman into a knee to, uh, knee to chest position. So that's a bum up nice and high in the air and the knees as far close to the chest as you can. Again, all of these uh, are kind of pictured within JR Calc because it's obviously difficult to describe. But what you're trying to do essentially is take any pressure off the cord. So that, that presenting part, whether that's a head or a bum, it's about trying to get any sort of pressure off that cord. So that kind of head up... Uh, that bum up in the air just takes the head or the bum off of that cord for the short term. And then what I'd be looking to do is get a dry pad um, and just insert the cord back into the vagina and, and apply the dry pad at the same time. And I'd be doing that with the pad. I wouldn't be touching the cord itself. We wouldn't want to cause any sort of spasm or any extremes of temperature. It really is just that dry pad. Um, and when I say popping the cord back into the vagina, it really depends on that size of that cord that's prolapsed. What I wouldn't be doing is getting distracted by fiddling. And if it isn't an easy sort of tiny part of the cord that's, that's prolapsed, I'd just be popping that pad on and avoiding any additional compression. What I then do is kind of look for something to get the lady down, down the stairs or into the ambulance. And it's really important that we don't, we don't chair these women and we, we don't add any additional pressure by having them sitting. So they really need to go from that knee chest position to walking to on the bed. So things that can help is kind of if you've got some kind of larger knickers that you can use to keep the pad in place, but not pulled up enough to provide pressure. We're not trying to provide direct pressure. We're just trying to protect the cord from any of the elements, cold, 
kind of touch or anything like that, but also get the woman out as kind of quickly and safely as possible. So when you've walked the lady out, um, it's about then how you position on the trolley bed. And it's quite a difficult, again, this is a really difficult one to describe, but you'd be looking at, uh, um, I would personally go for kind of a, a right lateral position. So the woman on her side, so she's facing me. Um, and then I'd be padding that bottom hip, trying to essentially manipulate that presenting part, so the head or the bum, off of the cord for the journey. And again, JR Count shows a good picture of this. And the more I describe it in detail, the more I'll potentially confuse the people that are listening. So it is really important just to kind of look at your pictures and kind of just visualise how that might look. I mean, I'll throw it over to Stacey to see if she can describe it better. No, essentially <laughs> you've, you've done it really well. I always, I always think about if you're, um, if you're presented with a cord prolapse and you're on the car, perhaps by you're a solo responder and you're waiting for your ambulance to arrive, so you're having to sort of wait a little bit on scene. I always think about padding, knickers up, getting some kind of sort of child's position if you've ever done yoga. It's sort of like a child's position with the bottom up in the air. I don't know if that's accurate or yeah, not. No, that's exactly it. But just, again, it, you really um, exaggerating the bum up in the air movement. So you're almost imagining that you're, you're causing that baby, as Sarah said, to, to sort of drop down mm. towards your head. So relieving where that cord is. Um, the gravity, isn't it? Work with the gravity. And Sarah, you're totally right. I think since the introduction of those pictures in the JR Calc, it really does help. So if anyone isn't familiar with those pictures, do go and look at them. There's also some uh, some videos in there as well, isn't there? And I think that, you know, they're, they're really brilliant because we don't see these things um, frequently. So do familiarise yourself with those. And I do think if you are a solo responder, it's providing that early report. If you find a cord and this wasn't given as, as, a, as a cord it really is important that you you upgrade and provide that early report because this is an obstetric emergency and routinely these would be category one calls if they were diagnosed over the phone so we can't guarantee what people say at the point of call with these types of emergencies so it really is important about getting that knee chest position and then escalating your concerns on scene because time really is of the essence here and this is one of those obstetric emergencies where the, the real focus is on the conveyance. So if, you, if you're a car on your own, you need to have that conveyance opportunity. So early reports and assistance for uh, a crew to convey. There's not anything that we can do pre-hospitally. It really is about getting that woman into theatre. Yeah, thanks, Sarah. And I guess one of the questions that I have about cord prolapse is, you know, I don't know if we've got any statistics or we know how successful the management is in terms of getting straight into into theatres but is it is it usually a successful sort of attendance at theatres and then is there a positive outcome often um so we we haven't necessarily got any statistics as sarah said it's, it's a really rare um obstetric emergency really as far as what what we tend to go to um but we have had some positive outcomes um and again exactly with what sarah said as far as it's just the the speed and the efficiency at which you know crews have acted and again that really early pre-alert so you know they've given the handover that this is a woman that is 38 weeks pregnant her waters have broken and it's a cord prolapse you know what the ETA is in a couple of the cases that we've had they've been taken immediately into theatre um, and um, so what we would do in hospital and um, kind of from the obstetric mid uh, midwifery perspective is we would assess the fetal heart we'd make sure this was a, a you know a viable and still 
a live baby um, as far as then sort of immediately this is what we call a crash run section so mm. you know usually the woman would be put under general anaesthetic and immediately deliver the baby mm. and we have haven't we Sarah we've had some really you know positive outcomes sort of not necessarily unexpectedly so but really pleasantly surprised haven't we because you kind of would think that you know you were, you would be worried about how long that cord had been exposed um, to the environment and how it would have been stimulated you know we don't know if this is a baby that's already compromised so whether this acute hypoxic event with a cord prolapse would would only worsen things or whether it was that in isolation so but we we have haven't we so we've had like a couple of cases that you know have been a real pleasant surprise and we've been you know had the privilege one of the good things about our job is that we do get to deliver those good news stories don't we and and the same with the call handlers i remember specifically going and actually speaking to some of the crews that that were involved in that from the point of 999 so there have been some good ones haven't there yeah and i think it's again we don't know how much um trauma that cord is going through is it compressed you know if we if we've got really good early recognition and really good positioning actually the these outcomes can be positive whilst it's an obstetric emergency it really is about how we respond to them and so um yeah i think it's really it's really good to see some positive outcomes because i think um, historically people may have um, it may have been quite difficult and people may have felt that actually these are kind of really uh, traumatic cases and it's very unlikely to have a positive outcome but I think what we're finding more and more is if we can expedite our extrication if we can have kind of really good recognition actually you know as Stacey said we've had some good positive outcomes for these babies and mums that's really brilliant yeah great okay thank you uh, so I think what we'll do now is move on to breach um, and I think Stacey you're going to talk us through breach um, we know that breach is anything but a head <laughs> it could be a foot it could be a knee um, could be a bottom I guess um, my question is is it always that easy to to tell is it always that easy to identify a breach or can we sometimes get them get them missed get them muddled up and how common is it for us to see breaches pre-hospitally um, so I think it is um, we do see more I know that in it since I've been in the ambulance service I've kind of come across and looked into and supported more breach births than I have in my sort of career in, a, in an acute in acute trust and that's usually because we attend a lot more uh, preterm births. So we know that, you know, at about 28 weeks gestation, there's about 28% to 30% of babies will be in a breech position. So they haven't yet turned. They haven't decided which way up they want to be. And so hence we're going to see more because we go to more preterm, usually by the, by um, their 37 weeks of term, that's dropped right down to only about 3%. Of babies will all find themselves in a kind of bottom down position um, so we do see um, we do see more pre-hospitally um, it's associated with relatively we've gone to cases where they've been quite speedy labors really these aren't sort of the long protracted labors that we see that this has happened quite quickly and and, and what they'll see and what they'll recognize is 
that it's a bottom coming or that they've attended and there's a foot hanging out um, and that's kind of the presented part similar to core products with what sarah was saying is that they've gone and they've, they've gone to the toilet or they felt a gush in the night and they've looked down and there's something hanging down and it happens to be a foot mm. um so i think what we say to start off with with breech birth is that is that your management is only if she's contracted so you have to look at this as though it's like another birth imminent call than the decisions that we were talking about as far as staying on scene or whether or not you're if you attend a woman and she's had a breach presentation in that there's a foot hanging out or a knee or something but she isn't contracting you have to just get her moving and again with a really nice early pre-alert as, as Sarah's um, emphasized um, because there's nothing you can do on scene if this woman isn't contracting you've got to make the most of that time now to get her into hospital and again they would do an assessment as to whether it was sensible to move straight to theatre so we're talking as far as the management of the birth is when you've attended and she's showing those signs and so she's got that urge to push, she's strongly contracting and you happen to see that it's it's a bottom first. Um, another sign before you've seen something visible that we associate, and you might have seen it on some videos and things, um, is, is uh, meconium. So when the baby's opened its bowels and obviously because it's coming bottom first, it hasn't had kind of the chance to mix with the amniotic fluid. So we it's like a tube of, of meconium as the, as the the rectum is essentially being squeezed um and and so you'll see that before you know before sometimes you know i would always be suspicious if you're seeing that really thick tube like meconium i think well hold on is that because this bottom's coming first um and then as far as the as far as the the management gravity is our friend and it's absolutely essential what we need to do is allow this baby to hang and if you've never seen it before it does look really strange actually the idea that we're we're letting a baby hang but that's what's going to give it the, the best chance for this baby to to maneuver itself um and to sort of work with the the dynamic and the mechanism of the pelvis and how it works during the labor is is for for you to have gravity on your side so again when you get there wherever she's in if you can kind of prop her up so i'm going to talk through kind of a position that we promote as far as just is what we're familiar with it's what we kind of use as far as training is concerned and it's in a semi-recumbent i know there are some practitioners out there that um, practice in a different way and again it's kind of what we say throughout isn't it and what you say with all your podcasts like it's you know you do what you are trained in and what your guidance says so if you are trained in what they call physiological breach birth where they're in a different position then then you know if it's safe to do so what we're recommending and what you know we follow jr calc and that's what we train is women that are in a semi-recumbent position so i would position them kind of on the edge of the sofa on the edge of the chair on the edge of the bed something so that they're still supported but from their bottom there's a drop so there is a significant drop that allows that baby to hang as it's as it's progressing and descending mm -hmm. um so then essentially what we refer to is is hands off the breach so we want to provide minimal stimulation so you know we've spoken you know at length about thermoregulation and creating the right environment so it's just you know shutting all the windows making sure it's really nice and warm and that this baby as it, as it descends isn't going to get stimulated at all before its head's born and so you want to make sure the environment is correct exactly as we've spoken before preparedness and then you're letting that baby come so 
it's hands off all the time whilst the mother is pushing really well and you're seeing more and more of the baby with every contraction and that's that's what we that's what progress is for us so you're documenting you're noting you're speaking with your colleagues that we've seen the knees the knees have come straight out or you know she's had two contractions now there was a bit of progress but i'm pretty sure i did not see any further descent with that last contraction and it's that when you have to put your hands on and you have to start giving this baby a hand and as Sarah said, it's quite difficult kind of on a, on a podcast, you know, we would refer to the pictures that you can find in your, in your national guidance, just to show you, you know, where to put your hands in certain places. Um, this is, this can potentially become a lot more of a hands-on delivery than we would normally expect from pre-hospital clinicians. So it's so important to engage with that mother and, and her partner because, you know, it might be that she will feel you touching, mm -hmm. you know, there are points at where we would want you to try and um, reach and apply a little bit of, of pressure to the back of the knee to help flex the knee to remove the knee so the woman's going to feel you touching her and um, the same when it comes to the removal of the arm so you know once the legs have dropped down they're hanging down again we want to see see descent further descent you know you'll see the umbilical cord and I would really note the time down as far as what you were saying and reminding everyone with documentation note the time that you've seen the cord um, because then you're on a real kind of clock as far as we want this baby out within three to five minutes and I think that we we all we have all had that experience when we've been on scene whether it's a maternity case or another type of critical incident um pre-hospitality and we've all had that experience where we think five minutes has passed but actually it's been 20 minutes and how quickly time can fly and we know from multiple you know teachings and um examples that how important it is to take the note of the time for everything um whether it's whether it's thinking about okay this has taken this long and now we need to really think about how long it's going to take us to get out and how much notice we need to give the hospital or whether it's even just in the case of a normal delivery we talk about the time the head's delivered the time the shoulders delivered the time the baby's out the time the placenta's delivered in this case we're sort of the opposite way round when the foot or you know the arm or whatever's been delivered and then the umbilical cord etc and it's I guess in this situation um, again it comes back to if you've got that luxury of having enough people it's having the scribe and mm. someone really keeping taking time um, yeah and I think it's really interesting because when you go into like midwifery practice or when I do um, shifts with midwives on labor wards etc timekeeping is very much a big part of their uh, their documentation with birth and observations etc and a lot of the stuff that we do um the focus is not always placed on timings exactly you know we very much have been around provide the emergency care and and take the notes and we know that we as pre-hospital clinicians work very much in that emergency setting and i think it's interesting because actually when we look back at these events it's exactly what you said caroline that actually someone you know and we're all guilty of it we think it took a minute but it took five um, and I think it's really interesting when you sit down and you look at it and you're trying to kind of piece together the timeline of what was actually going on at that particular time. And that's where actually noting the time, if you have a timekeeper, it actually really keeps you on track because you can see your journey through the job. And it's that constant kind of sense checking of how much time you've, you've potentially lost in between different things. Yeah. And I think certainly as, certainly as somebody who has... Um, been in maternity situations where 
I've um, had somebody who's who's been providing that scribe role, I think quite often it is um, almost delegated to the person who is the least experienced or maybe is the student um, because the advanced practice needs to happen with perhaps a more experienced clinician. But I think something to be really mindful is when you're delegating that role to perhaps somebody who is a bit more junior or perhaps is a student and you're asking them to be your scribe, it's also empowering them to have the confidence to challenge you as, as the lead clinician who may be a bit more kind of tunnel vision focused on the woman um, to say, actually, I want you to tell me if a minute's passed or two minutes has passed, I want you to give me a nudge because I know I'm going to be distracted and completely focused on something else. So I think being really mindful about who you're giving that role to and also empowering them to challenge you um, is quite important. Um, yeah. Oh, I think, I think, and I know we, we're going to come on to it because it's got such elements, hasn't it, of human factors as far as leadership and, and, and those that are following necessarily the leadership and how that person can become so task focused. So is it appropriate that they're, so yeah, I know we'll come on to that, but as far as the actual breach birth itself, you know, we've got to the part of the cord and, and, and noting the time of the cord and just being really mindful that you may have to get hands on. So if you're recognizing there's a delay um, and you're concerned that the baby has maybe stretched its legs, um, its arms inside, you're going to have to rotate that baby to try and release the arms. Um, what is essential is that we are keeping this baby's back uppermost. So the position that I've referred to where the woman is in semi, semi recumbent, so she's facing you, that means that baby's back should be facing you at all times. What we don't want is these babies to rotate themselves round so they've got themselves into an awkward position that's just going to make the delivery far more complicated so it's really really important that if you do see that baby turning especially as maybe you've released its arms it will you know annoyingly try to get itself in a position you want to gently by placing your hands on the bony prominence so we're usually just on the on their pelvis gently rotate them round um, and just always making sure that as that baby is descending and you're seeing more of it it's the baby's back that you're seeing um, until the point at which you'll see the nape of the neck and you'll see that you'll see the top of the baby's head and then you may have to facilitate the maneuver which you know you'll see the pictures in is where we lie the baby over our forearm and we're flexing the head so we're trying to optimize the position that the baby's coming into that final part of the birth canal um, so, so really, as far as being able to talk through it uh, on, a, on a podcast, I think we've kind of covered everything in that, you know, we cannot overemphasize the importance of, of, of gravity and having this baby, um, the mother in a seated position, making sure the environment is right. And just knowing that, you know, as you and Sarah have, have explained, don't let minutes go by with no progress. Mm. You know, if these babies breach birth tend to be really nice and quick, actually, which is why we put that five minute timer on them, because, you know, if they're not coming, they're not coming. So we, we've got one chance to perform a maneuver to try and help. If that is not working, then you need to move. And and it can be it can be really um sort of challenging and problematic if you've got you know to the point where a baby has delivered up to its head you are asking the mother to walk to the ambulance with the baby's body hanging between her legs and so you know it really is it, it really is challenging we see this more with our preterm breech births because you know our, our extreme preterm babies can can slip through you know 
uh, an, a not fully open cervix so that it's it's the point the head entrapment will occur sort of later and and there is nothing pre-hospitally we can do about that so again you know it's it take it's it's really challenging conveying and extricating these women um but at the same time that's the best chance they've got is mm. we've done everything we can with the kind of our armory of maneuvers and our skills and then we need to get going great thanks very much guys so moving on to our fourth um, and final emergency shoulder dystocia sarah how common is shoulder dystocia so I think, thankfully, shoulder dystocia is quite rare. Now, pre-hospitally, the data just isn't there to tell us how often we attend these emergencies pre-hospitally. But I can give you some data from the RCOG, the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, um, around instances that happen in hospital. And they quote kind of between 0.58 and 0.7% of deliveries. So that is a really small number in hospital, let alone what we may find pre-hospitally, but it's very difficult to know what we attend pre-hospitally. Just around all the problems that we have with data collection and what we what is, what is truly a show to dystocia and how we kind of manage and document those types of emergencies. I think moving forward, we'll see kind of more standardised documentation to get that kind of data with electronic patient care records and, it, and stuff like that. We should be able to pull data a bit more. So hopefully one day I'll be able to tell you how uh, common it is pre-hospitally. But for the moment, it's, it's a rare event, even in hospital. Those figures are very reassuring. <laughs> yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and right. I guess... Go on, sorry. No, and I and I guess I was just going to say that it's um it's all kind of um this is one of those emergencies that we don't have a lot of um we have a lot of training and feedback that we deliver via training, but actually because these cases are so rare, we don't actually have a lot of learnings from incidences within these cases because we actually don't see them. So actually, a lot of the stuff that I'll, I'll comment on today is actually what we do through we've learnt through simulation as opposed to what we've learnt from actual cases um, because they are thankfully so rare. I guess what's important first is that we just we define what a shoulder dystocia is. So the shoulder dystocia is where the newborn head is delivered, but the anterior shoulder is impacted on that maternal symphysis pubis. So that baby actually can't deliver because that shoulder is stuck against the symphysis pubis. And what we'd be looking for is a head that's fully delivered um, and there's no progression after those two contractions. And at that point, we'd really want the clinicians on scene to be verbalising that they think that this is a shoulder dystocia. So we'd be wanting that shared communication of, actually, we've got no progression, early recognition, this is a shoulder dystocia. And one of the things you can kind of use, kind of if you're thinking it might be a shoulder dystocia, is kind of that head may be retracting. So the head's fully out, but it's trying to pull itself back in. And we'd kind of recall that sort of turtlenecking. Um, and it is just where that baby literally is trying to pull itself back in because that shoulder is so heavily wedged against the maternal symphysis pubis. So we'd really want to kind of, at this point, start managing that shoulder dystocia. So the things that I'd be looking for is really good management of McRoberts' position. Now, McRoberts' position is, um, if, you, if you read the RCOG guidelines, is up to 90% successful in cases. Now, that's really reassuring for me because I'm thinking 90% of the time this is going to work. But one of the key things around McRoberts is if it's done properly. And so what's really interesting pre-hospitally is that we really do need to make sure that we optimise management uh, 
in the best way we can. So that's being on a firm, flat surface. And that really, for me, is the key point. There's no kind of small little cushions under the woman's back or under the woman's head. This is the only emergency where I would expect the woman to be positioned flat on her back. And then we'd want both of those legs brought back to kind of towards the shoulders. So you'd be taking both those legs and you'd be hyperflexing them back towards the shoulder. Now, in an ideal world, that would be two different clinicians performing that um, manoeuvre. Now, we have to accept that sometimes we may be there on our own as a solo responder. We may be there with multiple resources, but not a lot. But this, again, feeds back into that early escalation for support, because actually, when I talk through the, the best management as per JR Kelp, as you can see, you, you need a lot of people to perform this. And that's just to manage the, the, the manoeuvres that are required from the shoulder dystocia, let alone all the other things that are going on on scene. So kind of what I would like is I would like one clinician either side of each leg. And what we'd be doing is, is moving those back as far as we can onto the shoulders. And the purpose of that is to increase that pelvic diameter. And you're hoping that then that shoulder just frees and baby just delivers. Now, one of the things you should be doing during this time is providing gentle axial traction. Now, that's something that maybe we is certainly within our literature, but maybe something that we don't um, as clinicians feel that comfortable with what actually that truly means. And what I would say is that's providing kind of gentle hands on to the baby's head. And all you're doing is just feeling to see whether that shoulder has dropped and then delivering that baby. So this isn't pulling and it's not up, it's not down. You're not trying to deliver or force the baby out. It's just providing that gentle um, traction just to ascertain whether that shoulder's delivered. If that shoulder has delivered, that baby should deliver nicely in your hands. And you'd be maintaining that level of traction throughout the whole of these maneuvers. And the only thing that kind of we've also would feedback from simulation is when you start doing kind of axial traction, your other clinicians on scene become quite um, invested on whether or not the baby's delivered because obviously it's quite an emotional sort of scenario and what I would say is be careful that the people that are holding those legs are not actually gravitating towards you to see what you're doing so after every 30 second maneuver it really is going back whoever this team leader is is just saying have we fully optimized that Robert's position or have we all started to naturally creep forward because we really do need to keep that pelvis open as much as we can so we, these are all 30 second drills and it is really a short management before we move to hospital. So it's really important that we do have a timekeeper and that we do keep to kind of this really short drills. So we do them at Roberts, optimising the woman completely flat. And hopefully, as I said, 90% of those cases will be absolutely fine and baby will deliver. Um, if that doesn't happen, then we'd be moving kind of further through the algorithm so we'd be looking at kind of providing super continuous suprapubic pressure. So what you're doing there is you're providing that pressure. And what the first thing you need to do is identify which, which way the baby is facing and which shoulder you're trying to provide that pressure to. Because what you want to do essentially is just drop that shoulder under the pelvis and enable that baby to be delivered. So once you've done that, it is that continuous pressure for 30 seconds. And the sole purpose is to drop that shoulder. Throughout this, you'd be providing the axial traction to see, or axial traction to see um, whether or not that's helped. So this is McRoberts and superpubic pressure and the axial traction. That's already four clinicians you've now got committed to just managing that emergency. Um, and then after 30 seconds, if baby hasn't delivered, we'd be look at doing, looking at doing super rocking superpubic pressure. So that's the same position and the same uh, concept, but we'd just be trying to rock that shoulder off. 
of the pelvis to help deliver the baby. So that would be our next 30 seconds. So we'd now be at a minute and a half. And at this point, if the baby still hadn't delivered, we'd be popping the woman into the all fours position. Um, and that's just that final piece of movement to see whether or not that rotation can free that shoulder. At this point, if baby hasn't delivered, I'd be then redoing that axial traction and seeing if baby delivered. If baby hasn't delivered, at this point, I'd be going to hospital. And it's really important that we have that clear communication with the mum. Now, the mum will know that this is, this is a problem. She, she will know how a baby is supposed to deliver and she will know that this is not what this is not what's happening right now so it is about having that really courageous but firm conversation of we cannot deliver this baby we need to go to hospital and you'll find that by having that frank and uh, honest conversation they will get on board with you and your management so they you know we always say well how will they walk to the ambulance but actually this is kind of the state of emergency now this kind of override will take over they should be working with you so they'll get themselves down to the ambulance and then it is going to hospital that is what's going to help here um and so when you've kind of done your maneuvers it is just really kind of focusing on that early pre-alert again um, and that early sort of affording everyone that opportunity and then that communication of what are we going to do if that baby delivers when we walk to the ambulance now obviously if we've done all these maneuvers, it's unlikely that as we walk down the stairs, that will free off the, the shoulder that's impacted. However, we should prepare for that just um, because what we wouldn't want is for anything to happen while we're walking down the stairs. So kind of one of the easiest things to do is to kind of either use a blanket or use a kind of sheet or a bed sheet and have the mum hold kind of the one side and you hold the other. And then as, you, as you're walking, if anything happens, at least you've got that safety net of that blanket underneath. And, and you'll f the mum will feel that that baby is, is kind of released from that impaction. Um, but it's just to kind of be safe and just to be careful. Um, and then it would... I think it probably offers the woman a bit of dignity as well, doesn't it? You know, if you are walking down a, a stairwell in a block of flats or something, at least it provides, you know, that bit of dignity as well. Yeah, and I think I'd be using kind of, at this point, I'd be using like a dressing gown or anything that kind of provides that kind of coverage that you would want kind of dignity wise, but also kind of is usually easily accessible so that we can just keep the, the journey sort of moving. And I think it's, it is one of those ones like called prolapse where actually, yes, there's more to do with shoulder dystocia, but it's only, it's only two minutes. There's not a lot. We don't want to get bogged down with trying something that isn't working. If, if we do McRoberts well, like I said, 90%, up to 90% success rate. Actually, if we're in that 10% and we haven't done these maneuvers, uh, sorry, if, these, if the baby hasn't delivered with those additional maneuvers, actually, we do need to get going. It's unlikely that we're going to be able to, to deliver this baby. And no matter how long we spend switching up our maneuvers, the, the problem is still going to be the same. Um, so yeah, so that's kind of showed the dystocia. I guess I'll just throw it over to Stacey to check that I covered everything. <laughs> no, you did. I mean, it's you know super slick, and I think I think that's it. I think it's just the emphasis on on really good McRoberts, and probably the most common thing that we might see um, sort of pre-hospitally and sort of the management is, is maybe the first on scene. Exactly as Sarah said, they don't sort of maintain that really good McRoberts or they haven't got that woman quite as flat as they may think they'll be you know the woman will be propped up by some pillows maybe may even be supported by a relative or something just behind their back and you you've got to think about 
what the aim is with that McRoberts is, as Sarah's explained as far as that optimizing the diameter of the pelvic outlet and if you've got her in a kind of semi-recumbent you know propped up by some pillows and then her her um her legs you know flexed right back by her knees you're actually narrowing that diameter so you have to make sure you flatten that sacrum you've got her completely lying flat mm. and then you bring her legs up and as Sarah said, you've just got to maintain that as well. And don't let those legs um, drop back in in kind of the heat of the moment. Um, that, that's, what, that's what we tend to sort of find and just reminding that, that you have to maintain that, my Roberts, throughout. And I think, I think when I'm thinking about shoulder dystocia and I'm thinking about having that woman completely flat, it sort of does go against what we ordinarily think about women who are, you know, um, within their sort of second, third trimester of pregnancy, where we always say, you know, keep the woman up, keep her, keep her baby off of her, off of her inferior vena cava, don't compress the inferior vena cava, don't keep the woman flat, always have the woman on side or up. And, and I think, I guess, in the heat of the moment, trying to remember that having her completely flat in the shoulder dystocia um, situation is what you want I mean you can see how easy it might yeah. be just to forget that and like you said you've got somebody supporting her behind so I guess just I mean I think we've just had an incredible recap of four of the obstetric emergencies and I really want to thank you guys both so much I guess I'm kind of picking up on some of the key learning points really for all of them is timing is everything timing keeping an eye on the time not letting it run away with you if you're on scene having a clear leader somebody who's able to sort of delegate as if you're in a cardiac arrest situation having someone who's able to do that clear delegation and and really keep an eye and making sure that the the scene is moving forward the pace is moving forward um and I guess the other thing that's coming into my mind is that there are so many different elements of potentially human factors which are going to come into these scenes. It's hugely emotive, it's things that we don't deal with very often. We've got two patients, we've often got a partner or a husband or, or somebody there who we've also got to support and manage. We've got lots of members of staff on scene. It's very busy, very noisy. What are some of the sort of key pointers that you guys would say in terms of the learning generally from incidences that you've reviewed what are some of the key learning points do you think I think it's kind of establishing each roles within teams so if this is a baby that is actually a birth imminent so we 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 have stayed or there is an emergency it's about having those clear roles about who who is going to do what and how is the team going to be split once the baby is born because actually when we talk about shoulder dystocia, you know, both the woman is at risk of a PPH, but the baby's at risk of being born in a poor condition and needing NLS. So have we thought two steps ahead? Do we have a resus area set up? You know, do we have a team once baby is delivered? Who, who is taking over that care? Who's, who actually naturally is going to gravitate towards that resus area? And who's going to stay with mum? Who's responsible for mum? You know, and actually understanding that we don't have all of the senior clinicians dealing with one patient and then actually the less senior or more junior clinicians are dealing with the other patient and potentially fail to recognise a deteriorating patient when actually we had a lot of expertise on scene, we just didn't split them properly. And I think it's around having all the kit in the right place and having that real early escalation of what resources you want to see. Because it's great having numbers, but also having that senior clinical 
uh, experience is also really important. And also those people that can manage the incident for you, because this is an incident, whilst it's not typically an incident like a, an RTC with multiple patients, actually it is, a, it is a smaller niche of that where there is a lot that's going on. We need someone to manage the relatives to support them, to communicate with them what's going on. We need someone to drive a plan that's moving forward to hospital, but we also need all our kit. And who's going in what ambulance? Which, where are we going? And I think all of those things are really important to make sure that we have the right resource attached to these calls, but then we're all, we all know our place and we all know what, what our role is within it and who actually is in charge. And I'd say when you allocate someone in charge, that usually, um, in an ideal world, wouldn't be the person performing the skills. So if you are managing the emergency, again, as you would with a cardiac arrest, I would, I would like, where possible, to have the team leader to be hands-off and actually have that global overview of the two patients and the situation of what's actually going on. Because if your team leader is, is hands-on, naturally their, their kind of focus starts to tunnel towards what they're doing. And then before you know it, you've kind of potentially had the opportunity to lose the direction of the job and the momentum that you would have had of kind of going to definitive care and kind of formulating that plan. I guess one of the things we didn't kind of touch on, Stacey, was um, about when uh, midwives are on scene and maybe it's a community birth and kind of how we work with them together because we've had kind of some things where we've worked together and I think that really focuses on that shared communication as well. Oh, absolutely. I think I think um, and this will probably be shared around when we've spoken to colleagues around the country as well. And, you know, a, a massive driver for us at the moment. And it's, you know, really high on the agenda for, for Sarah and I and nationwide is, is the joint training, because that's when we see this kind of the human factors element of the huge resource that you can provide as far as an ambulance service. And exactly as Sarah said, where you've got that delegation of roles from you know your leadership to who is who who's delegating for the two patients and that's and that's really something because of the emotion of that those you know and it happens quickly doesn't it i know we've said before that it, you know in a matter of minutes it's going to go from one patient to two patients um let alone then when you've got two different professionals on scene from two different organizations so you know typically it will be a midwife that's calling the ambulance service because something's gone wrong so you know you kind of have to to think as far as performance under pressure and teamwork where is that midwife at the point of when you've walked walked in as an ambulance service and I think that's what we're trying to do as far as improving communication because you know if you kind of look as you know probably well versed in our like arc of performance where you know that midwife is not going to be in her flow state as far as her adrenaline and her performance is at a peak as far as her managing this she will be probably very much in the frazzled part of the curve and and is desperate for you to get there and potentially take over but what is so important and what we do with the simulation and the constant drills that we do and and what we want to do with midwives and and ambulance clinicians is that you know so a really good handover what exactly is going on and remembering you know so we're all very used to spar that's what we're driving as far as what our communication tool that we want to use remembering that r remembering that recommendation so we would say to a midwife you know you did a really good handover i know that this woman is term and that she started contracting at this time and then the baby was delivered at this time but you still haven't told me what you want me to do you know, what are you recommending for us to do? What do you want for that first responder? You still haven't got a conveying vehicle on scene yet, but a, a solo responder has arrived in a car. What can they do? Okay, my recommendation is I haven't had a chance to set up my NLS area yet. Please, can you set up ready? Because, you know, the baby's coming, it's stuck, or I'm doing this manoeuvre and we expect a baby that's going to be born in poor condition. So, 
I think when we've done training, haven't we, Sarah, like we kind of have realized that we probably all do our own skills and drills training, don't we? So like Sarah and I would do with kind of our London lot, our pre-hospital clinicians, you know, midwives in a maternity unit will do their annual skills and drills updates, but making the most of our time together to discuss these kind of things, understanding each other's roles, how best we delegate, you know, primacy of care is an issue, isn't it? That we kind of get a discussion going quite often, Sarah, with, with you know, who's best to do what? So who, you know, and as a pre-hospital ambulance clinician, we are kind of usually in our element at tackling a very unwell person. So if that's the baby or the mother, you know, see see where that is. And, and you know, is the midwife still the best leader as far as it's concerned when we look at leadership? And, you know, I, I love you know the research that's that talks about followership and and the importance of, of of followership and when you're talking about a high performing team and when you're talking about those multidisciplinary teams and having someone come in that becomes not necessarily a follower is, is maybe not the right word and I know we're kind of moving towards maybe like expert assistance but someone that can put you know that hand on the back and just say do you want me to take over now I can see you've been resuscitating this baby on your own for 10 minutes why don't I take over and you go and talk to the family or something like that and just being quite dynamic with with our delegation of roles and our communication but at the same time it's, it's got to be clear isn't it and that's when we read back at stuff and we'll talk, talk to two different teams and they, they didn't know what was going on did they you know, if, if, if you had asked what was the midwife doing, they wouldn't necessarily know. And if you asked the midwife, what was the paramedic doing or what was the technician doing? They won't know. No, and I think it's really important that the joint training kind of um, increases the understanding of each other's roles and capabilities. You know, in this pre-hospital kind of field, actually, we are thinking about the extrication, all the other things that actually probably potentially as a midwife who's had what was normal go into the emergency situation, you may not have thought about how we're going to get all this kit out or, you know, who's coming, you know, are both midwives coming to hospital? If you've got a first and a second, you know, where's the notes, you know, everything kind of flips on its head quite quickly when it turns into an emergency. So I think we, in some respects, we bring real strength to the team around the kind of onward planning of moving the job along, but actually what we need to do is really have that good communication. And that's a lot of what our joint training uh, needs to focus on really is kind of empowering understanding of the other, of the other professionals, but also understanding of how we can work together um, as an unfamiliar team in that emergency. So much great learning from our side, from working with midwives as well. Um, And really it's so brilliant that, that we have the opportunity in London to have a lead paramedic and a lead midwife working together to then extend out to the wider London population to to provide all of this shared learning because that's what it's all about. Um, I'm going to call it there. I know we could talk for hours. (laughs) Thank you so much, both of you. You've been absolutely wonderful. And it's been really great to hear you talk us through some of the key pointers on these emergencies that thankfully we don't see very often. Um, So thank you so much indeed. And um, we'll see you soon. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast on the Medics Academy Network.